Thank you, band, and thank you, Victoria. I'm not sure where you disappeared to, but that was an awesome offertory. There you are. Did you pick that or did Robin? Either way, it was great. It wove together. I mean, we had baby dedication themes in that song. You had crossing the Red Sea. The whole service was like thrown into that uh, offertory. That was great. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, Speaking of crossing the Red Sea and all of that, let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. This is page 60 in the Black Bibles. And while you're turning there, um, in honor of baby dedication and baptisms, I thought I'd mention to you how um, child development experts have discovered or pointed out over the years an interesting thing takes place when you show a baby a uh, a reflection of themselves. Um, And maybe some of you will have noticed this with your own kids. You you put an infant, you have them look into a mirror, they will be interested for a very short period of time, and then they will direct their attention elsewhere. You you come back to that baby in that mirror, excuse me, a few months later, and the little one will be absolutely captivated by their new friend that they have found. In fact, if you put like a, a dab of red marker or lipstick on their nose, that little baby will be absolutely fascinated and reach out and try and touch with their new friend, trying to figure out what is going on with this red dot on their nose, right? Come back a few months later, exact same thing, red dot, mirror, and what does the baby do? Well, they touch their own nose. In just a few months period, They've gone from a total lack of self-awareness to being quite self-aware. And I think to myself um, that that's that's probably got some value to us this morning. Um, Last week I suggested to you as we began our summer series through the Ten Commandments that the Ten Commandments function very much in our lives, or they ought to, like a mirror. In fact, I gave you three pictures, if you were here for that opening sermon in this series, that the Ten Commandments, i.e. the moral law of God in the Old Testament, it functions really in three ways. It functions like shackles, in that it restrains evil, at least in an external way. It doesn't change our hearts, but it holds evil in society, holds it back. That the the moral law functions like a magnifying glass in that it highlights the nature and the character and the priorities of God. And then third, the moral law functions very much in our lives like a mirror in which we look and we begin to see, huh, there's stuff that's making me unclean. When we, when we look into the law, see, we find that the law looks right back at us. When we read the law, we find that the law begins to read us. And so now we begin to see, like a mirror, we begin to see the dirt upon our face, but we realize I can't wash my face in the mirror. I got to go to someone else. I got to go somewhere else to be, excuse me, to be cleaned. And so... Um, That kind of sets the stage for where we're going to be this morning because when Christians approach the Ten Commandments, and particularly the first one, there's a couple of options that lie before us when we read God's law, right? The first option is that we can say, ooh, that 
this commandment here, this really highlights the spot on my neighbor's face. <laughs> In fact, I really wish they were here to, to listen to this sermon. I should send this sermon to them because they really need this stuff. The other approach is to look into the law and say, ooh, this law is highlighting how unclean I am. I need a redeemer. I need a savior. So that's my hope as we move through this for June and July and August, that more and more, there's always application to the folks around us. I know that. But what I'm hoping is that more and more as a church family, when it comes to God's law and obedience to him, we move beyond infancy and we chase after maturity and we do personal application first. So all that brings us to Exodus chapter 20. We were in chapter 19 last week, now 20. Um, Exodus is part of what's called the Pentateuch, which means book in five parts, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Exodus is the second part of this book in five parts. Um, And in in the first 19 chapters, you see how God takes his people, he carries them, he splits the sea, as was was sung a little while ago. He, He moves them through, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea. He carries them out of bondage, out of slavery, and now we're hitting the pause button because we're just camped around the mountain of Sinai. Um, It's all quite dramatic. It's something of an object lesson for God's holiness that this mountain is is covered with a thick cloud-like smoke. You remember there's lightning, there's thunder, there's earthquake and a trembling of the mountain, which then causes the people to tremble. There's trumpet blast. There's the warning, don't touch the mountain All of that is a picture of how in our sin, God is absolutely unapproachable. But in the midst of his otherness, his holiness, he now calls out and he says, Moses, you're going to be the mediator. You're a prophet. You're going to be a mediator. I want you to come up to me and I'll give you, I'll reach down to you to give you the law for the people. And that's where we fall into the text this morning. So Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the very word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, that's so short, we ought to read that one again. (laughs) In fact, if you're reading the ESV, why don't you read along with me? And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen and amen. If preaching is one part teaching in one part exhortation, I might be a little bit heavier on the former, at least in the first part of the sermon. Um, You're a bright church and hopefully you'll find this to be of value. I certainly do because you and I, listen, we live in an antinomian age. And if that is a word that's unfamiliar to you, I want to encourage you to, to kind of Put this into your theological dictionary. Um, It's from the Greek, anti-against, nomos law, antinomian. Um, Specifically, this is a reference to 
This idea, the view that because we have received grace, because we now live in the New Testament era and we have received grace, Christians are now completely released from observing the Old Testament moral law. It's heresy, it's not right, but it is believed by some, and quite frankly, it's practiced by many. And this church, well, we will be no exception here. See, in the 21st century American Christianity, the Ten Commandments, they often have something of a symbolic role, right? We know how many there are, <laughs> we just know, we're not sure what relevance they have. In fact, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to invite you guys to pause a moment and covenant with God to memorize these Ten Commandments as we work through them this summer and to pray through these Ten Commandments as we work through them this summer. Because here's the preeminent question. Is the Old Testament moral law still binding on me today? Answer, yes. Period. Unequivocal. The Old Testament moral law is absolutely binding on the New Testament Christian who's living in the grace of Jesus Christ. We know this. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. He was asked, what is the greatest commandment, right? Because the Old Testament, it has, I believe, 613 explicit moral laws. Jesus was asked, okay, what is the greatest commandment by the Pharisee? And Jesus replies, The greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, all depend all the law. On these two commandments depend all the law. Now what's going on there? This is a super important point. It's really significant for mature Christians to understand what Jesus is doing there because the implications for us today are profound. What Jesus was doing was taking the Ten Commandments and he was dividing them into two tables. Commandments one to four, first table. Commandments five to ten, second table. Commandments one to four, are all, they all have a vertical orientation, Right? And for those of you who know the Ten Commandments, this, this is making sense to you because you think through the first four, that no other gods, no idols, no misusing God's name, honoring the Sabbath day. So Jesus is saying the first table of the law, which all has this vertical orientation, is summarized simply by love God with everything. And the second commandment is like it. Commandments 5 through 10, you know, honor your mother and your father, do not murder, do not steal, dot, 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 all of them. He says all of that, that second table, is summarized simply by, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the whole moral law of the Old Testament is captured repeatedly, but specifically here in the New Testament. So listen, we don't get to be antinomian. We don't even get to be ignorant. Because if you're coming to church (laughs) and you're here in this series, you're being exposed to how God says we need to live. Christians don't believe in a lawless grace. 
any more than we believe in a graceless law. Law and grace in Christ, they're perfectly congruent, right? In fact, the, the former points us to our need of the latter. The mirror shows me I need someone who can wash me clean. So if we're going to be the kind of church that's thoughtful about how we're called to live, that, that we're thoughtful about the Ten Commandments, this piece right here is the first step, to realize that the Ten Commandments are a mirror in which we see our guilt. The second step, and we're trying to build this over several weeks, so maybe you're keeping notes or jotting down things that are new to you on your phone or however you're doing it. But the second piece to understand is that all 10 of the 10 commandments, they all have both a positive and a negative component. Most of the commands have an explicit negative and an implicit positive. A couple of the commands have an explicit positive and an implicit negative. And now as all of your eyes glaze over, (laughs) I shall explain to you what we mean here. Um, Let's take the fifth commandment. When the fifth commandment states positively, do honor your father and your mother, what's the implicit negative? Don't dishonor them, right? And so, and we're going to, in a few weeks, we're going to begin to drill down on all the ins and outs of how we fulfill both pieces of that, okay? Um, When the Ten Commandments state the explicit negative, do not covet, what's the implicit positive? This one's a little harder for us, apparently. This is why we're doing the series, people. It's okay. The implicit positive, if the negatives do not covet, the implicit positive becomes do be satisfied with all that God has given you and wherever God has, and some of us need that one, right? Because some of us here, we struggle with satisfaction. In fact, some of us have made it a full-time job to, to claw and climb after the things that we don't have. Always with this background, low-level resentment that I should have more. We take ambition and we go way past that to dissatisfaction. And so we need a 10th commandment that gives us both the explicit negative, do not covet, and the implicit positive, do be satisfied. And we'll look at that one in August, Lord willing. So as we're building out our theology together, we're recognizing every single one of these commandments has a positive and a negative. You can't fulfill the law without obeying both. You cannot fulfill God's law without knowing and obeying both. So this is a good point of application in our prayer lives, right? I mean, beginning today, this afternoon, we can go right into our prayer closet and we can say, Lord, we looked at one commandment this morning. Can you help me understand what does it demand of me and what does it forbid of me? And what are the areas, what are the blind spots in my life? Are my sins hanging, hanging out at like, like seven or eight o'clock and I can't see it? God, fix me here. This is how we pray through the commandments. God, will you give me the grace to obey this? Because grace 
is what's front and center here at the start of the Ten Commandments, and I don't want us to miss this. I think about, it's called the preamble, right? So I'm thinking our nation's constitution, which has a beautiful preamble. How does it start? Come on, say with some conviction, Americans. (laughs) We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, and it's beautiful, it's really well written, and says some awesome stuff. Listen, it pales in comparison to what's right here. Verse two, the preamble to the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right at the start, what do we have? Grace. God lays out who he is and what he has done for them, freely unmerited. This is where we often go so wrong. This is where the American church is so woeful in our appreciation for God's Ten Commandments because we disconnect this text from its context. We forget it's the I am that gives the foundation to the you shall. The I am gives foundation to the you shall. Who's the verse two I am? Not a rhetorical question. I know, I mix it up sometimes. Sometimes I expect you to respond, sometimes I want you to respond this time. (laughs) Who's the I am? God, big G or little G? (laughs) Capital G. I am Hebrew, Yahweh. So right out of the gate at Sinai, it's like God's calling a family meeting, right? You guys ever do family meetings? We do them regularly in my, I find we have a lot of need for family meetings in our house. And if you ever do a family meeting, that's what God's doing, except he's doing it with an entire nation because he's God and he can do that. So camped around Sinai there, Exodus 20, the family meeting goes something like this. Kids, listen up. There is a God. (laughs) I am God. You are not God. (laughs) They are not God. Nobody else is God. No thing else is God. I am God. Which means you are not the center of the universe. You ever say that to your children? (laughs) I've met your kids. Some of you need to have that conversation with your children. Well, here in Exodus 20, God's having that conversation with us, and he's reminding us who he is, the God, big G, who displayed free grace by bringing them out of Egypt, by carrying them like on eagle's wings, out of slavery. It's the foundation, I am, that then leads to the you shall, or we can put it like this. The Ten Commandments are all about the who before they're ever about the do. The Ten Commandments are all about the who before they're ever about the do. See, it's only when we're in relationship with the who, the I am, that we can have any hope of fulfilling the do. And when we get those two things backwards, you understand that's a completely different religion altogether. 
Mark Deaver, he's a Washington, D.C. pastor. He relays a story from one of his Ph.D. studies. This one made me chuckle. I had made a statement in a doctoral seminar about God. Bill responded politely but firmly that he liked to think of God rather differently. For several minutes, Bill painted a picture for us of a friendly deity. (laughs) He liked to think of God as being wise, but not meddling, compassionate, but not overpowering, ever resourceful, but never interrupting. This, said Bill in conclusion, is how he liked to think about God. I replied, thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself. (laughs) But we're here to study what God has said about himself. And it's exactly right. God, big G, defines himself. This is what drives our worship. And out of that, maybe simultaneous to that, is what drives our obedience, who he is. Look up at the ceiling. We think to ourselves, this is fantastic. We have a ceiling. This is great, especially on rainy days. I'm so grateful for it. And we think about all these lights. Someone put those lights in place. Most of them even work. (laughs) Someone wired those things up. Someone hooked up the projector. Somebody did this. Now walk outside on a cool summer evening, look up to the sky, and all the stars proclaim the magnificence of the I am who is there. Deuteronomy chapter four, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. There is no other. The truth, that truth, you understand, that stood in stark contrast to the world that these Israelites were about to walk into. Right? Because where were they going after Sinai? Yeah, they were going to Canaan. We go to the, the promised land. And it didn't go so well for them there. And then there's a delay and then they go back. But the point is, God knew what they would find in Canaan. They were going to find in Canaan, they were going to be absolutely surrounded by all of these false gods, little g. There's going to be in Canaan, basically a display case of false gods. There was going to be, some of the Canaanites worshipped Baal, uh, male deity of fertility, um, who was worshipped, 1 Kings 18, uh, among other things, by uh, the prophets slicing themselves in worship. They were going to find in Canaan the false god Ashtaroth, remember the Asherah poles, um, female fertility deities who are worshipped via all kinds of sexual confusion and sacred prostitution. They're going to find in Canaan the god Molech who requires the sacrifice of children up to the age of about two to be burned in the fire to appease his wrath. In fact, just a few years ago, they were extending the runway at the Damascus airport and they found a pit. They unearthed this. It dated all the way back to the Canaanites and all these little broken bodies that had been burned to the false god Molech. Don't dismiss the text from its context 
This is the world that these chosen of God set apart and made holy. The Israelite people, they were going to be walking into this world and God's telling them from the outset, no others, just me. First commandment. God lays out the who and then takes us to the do. He says, I am. Therefore, you shall. Shall what? You shall have no other gods before me. The Hebrew there before me, it's all pani. It literally translates out before my face, which is significant because God is not saying to them, he's not giving them here merely an issue of preeminence. You can have other gods, just make sure I'm the best one. He's saying, you will not bring any other gods into my presence. There are no other gods ever before me. So how does this ancient command touch down in our life? That's the question. We've been hanging out thousands of years ago here for most of the sermon. How does this touch down in my life? Well, I think you could say that here at MCC, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, and a few of you, I'm sure you will. <laughs> you, I think the issue here at MCC is often one of divided loyalties. I mean, certainly we have this morning, as we do every, we're going to have um, first-time guests, and we're going to have people here um, in our worship service who you would not take to yourself the name Christian. You are, you are not This is not where you're at right now. And to you, I just want to say thank you for being here. Thank you for sitting through 30 minutes of a a sermon and giving me a hearing. It is a great gift to me and to us, and I appreciate that. This is a church, after all, so I think it's it's also right to assume that the vast majority of us here want to honor God, but at the same time, we often value at least as much our own preferences, and our own comforts. So take an honest look in the mirror here. In a sense, I think we need to tip our hat to the idolaters of old. You know, all those folks who worshipped Zeus and Molech and Athena and Dagon and Wotan and Thor and Artemis. All those people are mostly gone. Mostly but they might have had more of a sense of what they were doing than we do today. You follow? I I mean, the modern gods of state, sex, scientism, money, power, influence, these things are often for us far harder to admit and sometimes far harder to identify at all. But if we're going to be the kind of church family that's everything God has called us to be, then we need to admit that the worship of false gods often begins with comfortably dressed Christians gathering in lovely New England churches in traditional white pews. We got to look at our own faces here, MCC, and ask, huh, Is that red dot on my nose? I mean, my goodness. I'm only in like one commandment here. 
And I think to myself, I've already failed the test. And it's not looking very promising for the next nine. If you have a similar sense of despair, take heart, Christian. I want you to think about it this way. I want you to imagine the fulfillment of God's perfect law like a bucket, except it's like the biggest bucket you ever saw. This thing is so big to perfectly fulfill God's law. This bucket is so big that if you were to pour the entire Atlantic Ocean into it, it wouldn't really cover the bottom, (laughs) okay? That's, That's what it takes when we have a holy God with a holy law who demands perfection. Now, pour your own goodness. Just go ahead, pour your own obedience into that bucket and tell me how much it fills up. It's a drop. I mean, it's less than a drop, right? And then the New Testament comes in, hinted at all along the way, the Messiah, the coming Savior, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, by his iniquities, by our iniquities, by his stripes, we're gonna be healed. It's hinted at, and then we finally hit the New Testament, and Jesus steps forward out of Bethlehem, out of Nazareth, and he pours all of his righteousness, as it were, into that bucket, because he perfectly fulfilled all of it, and it fills the whole thing up, and then some. And the gospel says, Go to him. Go to him and ask that his righteousness would be attributed, would be credited to you. Because your very best is less than a drop in the whole thing. I say that little illustration because if you guys leave here this morning or any other one of these sermons, as we look at the law in depth over the course of the summer, the worst thing in the world to me (laughs) would be that we walk out of this sanctuary and we're thinking our point of application is I gotta do better and I gotta try harder, right? Because some of you, you grew up in churches like that You spent your entire childhood potentially in a family that taught you that, or at least that's what you heard, and you got it in your head that I don't even want to study this law. I'm a little annoyed we have to spend a whole summer on it because it's just nothing but a boulder to crush me. And there's no understanding that this is a love letter from a good father handing it to us and saying, Live like this, and it will go well for you. So I want to plead with you to not leave this sanctuary thinking, try harder, do better. Leave this sanctuary thinking, I go back to my Savior. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10,000th time, I go back to him, and I say, God, will you give me the grace to do what's asked of me here? Know the who before you do the do. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. 
To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shit.